All right. So how is everybody doing today? Good? Feel good in your heart? Hungry for God this morning? Yes. Um, hungry? Mm. Shelby, I know what you meant. You're also pregnant, so it's okay. Well, golly, and Liz is pregnant, and Michaela is pregnant, and Tiffany is pregnant. The church is pregnant. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Allie's not pregnant yet. <laughs> you better not be. Scarlett's not pregnant yet. Scarlett's gonna adopt. Everybody who should be pregnant is pregnant. Oh, are you prophesying? Yes. Yes, I am in Jesus' name. Everybody who should be is. I don't know what the Lord has, baby. I'm we'll just wait. We're not wrestling right now. I see you guys have. Bro, we've Bro, never, prevented, we've never prevented, prevented a day in our lives, so we don't have two by choice, by our choice. We have two by his choosing. Yeah, I've lost four babies after Johnny, so we would have six if they all lived. For sure. Because I miscarried every two years. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that's one of those things we've had to hold in tension with the Lord, man, for the last 11 and a half years. Mm -hmm. But the Lord knows, man. The Whether Lord knows. he does or he doesn't, I'm grateful. Well, I went to bed last night late uh, after just hanging out all day with family at the house and playing board games and watching football and having a good time yesterday. The last few days have really been a great, just yeah, a great amazing. couple of days at the house for our family. We've enjoyed being together and it's been really good. It's all good. Um, I went to bed last night and I had, um, I use the words prophetic experience very lightly because I'm not somebody who's given over to chasing experiences or encounters. And in fact, I think a lot of that can get real sideways real quick. But nevertheless, I went to bed last night and I had a bit of a prophetic experience with the Lord in simple terms. I, he was talking to me all throughout the night. I mean, from the time I went to bed till the time I woke up, I kept drifting in and out of sleep, and he was talking to me while I was sleeping, and he was talking to me while I was awake. Um, and it was an interesting, I mean, it was, I was like, felt like I was awake all night, but I was also, I woke up very rested um, in the Lord, and I would, I would open my eyes, and he would say things to me, and I would have these thoughts roll through my mind and we would dialogue a little bit and then I would drift off back to sleep and then I would wake up to him talking to me again. So um, I feel like he was giving me uh, just kind of a download and a mandate for this morning. And so what I feel like the Lord wants us to talk about and to teach about this morning um, is it revolves around these questions that we have all asked ourselves at one time or another. And in fact, I believe they are questions that many people in this room are asking themselves right now. And so some of those questions are pertaining to, you know, what is my destiny? What is my direction? What is my purpose? What is my identity? Where do I belong? To who do I belong? 
you know, how is this going to work? Anybody ask themselves any of those questions? Yeah? Yes? yes. We had, this is an interactive discussion. Yeah. Right. So I believe that these questions are essential to the human heart. And it's out of our longing for identity and our longing for destiny that we often ask ourselves these types of questions. Because the truth is, because we were made in the image of God and because we were made according to the scriptures to belong to him and to be with him and to become like him, we can't help but to think these thoughts and to have these questions. So a thought that I had that I want to share with you before we get into the scripture is this. And I posted it in the group me as I think the last thing that I said. But it was a deep thing um, that the Lord was talking to me about in my heart. And this is what he said to me. He said that any part of your identity or destiny that has been found outside of intimacy is idolatry. Any part of my identity or my destiny that has been found for me outside of intimacy with God is actually idolatry. Right? We create places in us that prophesy back to us our worth, value, and significance outside of our security in Christ. And these places actually create idolatry in us. Does that make sense? So some examples of what those things can look like can be my job, the amount of money I have in my bank account. What are you saying? Food. Um, how many kids I have. What people think of me. Um, anything. Anything that I find or I seek security in that's outside of Christ and what he says about me, it is idolatry. And I want to say this because it's not meant to be heavy. It's meant to get us to think this morning about while God is, how many of you would say that God has been gracious to you in your life? <laughs> One billion percent, right? That we know that God is gracious and that he has graciously revealed these things to us. But I will tell you that I believe as much as God has been gracious, that he is also jealous for us. And I believe that where God wants to take the church in this season is from a place of being thankful for his grace and his graciousness to a place of understanding his jealousy for us. Yeah. To be a people who actually look like him, sound like him, act like him, talk like him, walk like him. Does that make sense? You're going to go hold him. How are you doing this morning? Like, maybe you may just need to take him out of the stroller and, and hold him. Okay. The joy of... Yes. Well, we don't even want to call it house church. We just want to call it family. And here's the reason why, Glenn. Yes. Because 
we also live in a day and age, bro, where there are these dissecting and diverting um, and divisive movements that are popping up in the church. And one of them is the house church movement now, right? Well, we don't meet in a building. We meet in a house. So therefore, we're doing it right and you're doing it wrong. And I'm actually saying that because I was out in Seattle with Michael Dow last month. The leadership there kept on trying to box Mike in while he was talking and box us in while we were there into the house church movement in order to separate us and put us in this room over here while they're doing the normal thing. We're doing the house church thing. And it's like, no, actually meeting as the church in a house is actually just a part of the whole deal, right? It's not the sum total of our identity. It's not the sum total of, of the way that we move because we meet in a building yeah. right now more than we do in our homes yeah. um, corporately, but then we're meeting together in our homes together all the time doing life with one another. So I think really the language is you know, the shared way of life, doing family, being community. And I just want to be very specific about that because I think that there's a, and you would probably agree with me, there's a lot of people that do house church that are very unhealthy. Woundedness, rebellion, I, I don't want to do it their way, so I'm going to do it my way. And unfortunately, even their way is still super wounded and unbiblical. So I can meet in a building and be unhealthy, and I can meet in a, meet in a house and be unhealthy. But I can also meet in a building and be healthy. Praise the Lord. Right? Either way. Which is why I also, if you guys ever pay attention to a lot of the language that I use, I will tell people to meet me at the building. I don't say the church. On purpose. Because it's part of the language. It's part of changing the culture is this building is not the church. We were the church. We are the building before we moved into this thing and started hanging out here a few months ago. Correct? We are the body of Christ. We are the church. Where we are, the government of God is present because he lives in us and we live in him. All right, so if you have your Bible, I want you to go with me to John chapter 13. And I know that in some ways what we're talking about seems so simple. And can I tell you the truth is that it's because it really is. I felt like the Lord said this phrase to me this morning and he said, I want to teach you about the simplicity of your destiny. Because it's in God. Right? Well, what does that mean? My, my destiny is in God. My intimacy is in God. My identity is in God. We've been talking the last few weeks as a people Right about how our security is in Christ. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be secure? Okay, give me another definition. That's good. I'm looking for something a little more simple, not a wrong answer. It's a foundation. So let's talk about the characteristics of a foundation. Give me some adjectives that describe a foundation. Firm. Planted. Solid. Immovable. 
unshakable, rooted. So if I'm insecure, I am not those things, right? Or there are things in me that are lacking in rootedness, in firmness, in immovability, in unshakability. You ever been around a really, really insecure person? Maybe you've been that insecure person. Because the truth is we all have been. Not me. And the truth is that there are places in us that are more secure than others, right? And that just because we're insecure in one area doesn't mean that we're insecure as a whole. However, the issue is is that if we don't let the Lord touch the insecurities in us, they will spread like cancer. Right? A little bit of leaven ruins the whole dough. Right? It works its way in us. So we're, we're not letting God have access. That actually opens up the door for him to not have access in other places. And it may be slow, but eventually other parts of our person end up being closed off. Does that sound fair? So when we're talking about the difference between insecurity and intimacy, like... We're talking about the difference between knowing God for who he is and then knowing God for who we think he is. I don't want to project out of my insecurity things onto God's person that are not true. But we do that because of the unhealed and unwhole places in us. And the key to actually understanding our identity as it pertains to our identity in Christ, is understanding the security, our position in his love. Right? Firm foundation. Rooted and grounded in what he says about me. So I want to start in John chapter 13. We are going to start in verse 33. 13, 33. No, the Gospel of John. So we'll give Shelby a second to get there. So the context of what we're gonna what we're leading into in John 13, fam. Jesus is being betrayed by Judas. Satan has just entered Judas. He tells Judas, It's time for you to do what you're gonna do. Go do it. And then now he's going to give some instructions to his disciples while Judas is literally going to get the Pharisees. He's going to go betray the Son of Man. And so Jesus says in verse 33 to his disciples, he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Where was Jesus going that they could not go? Bingo. Jesus was going to the Father. He's saying, I'm headed to a place you can't come yet. Which, in turn, wigs them out. Right? They start to panic. They're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? Like, we've been with you for three and a half years. We followed you where you've went. 
right? I feel like everybody in this room is so distracted. Focus. Center your hearts and minds. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That you also, yes, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we're not teaching around this subject this morning, but these verses also can't, we can't just skip over them either, right? Like, he is connecting dots for them about what it means to be my disciple. Judas is betraying me. You're left. Here we are sitting together. Do you love me? Do I love you? Do you have love in your heart for one another? Because if you don't, you cannot be my disciple. Have you ever noticed in Jesus' teachings that he spends a lot of very, very clear, he spends a lot of time and expends a lot of energy into very simple and clear language about who's his and who's not. Would you agree with that? Like, why are we so confused in the church about who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't? And it doesn't mean, right, that I have to walk around and judge everybody and everything and say, well, you're not and you're not and you're not, but you are and you are. He's also saying, though, if you're wondering in your heart about your own life or about the lives of people in your sphere of influence, you'll know them this way. This is how you know if somebody who says they're of me really is of me. That they love one another. Look around the room. Do you love the people in this room? Yes. Are you willing to make sacrifices all the way down to your very life? No greater love than this, Jesus said, right? Than he who does what? He lays down his life for his friend. Jesus defines friendship in the gospel as you being willing to die for the person who you call your friend. How small does that make your circle right now? <laughs> right? I'm just saying. Well, it's interesting because we were having this conversation. You're like, hey, man, I'm kind of figuring out in the season who my friends are. My circle's kind of small. And it's not meant to... To produce this woe is me, woundedness, and orphan heartedness, right? Nobody is my friend. But I'm just saying, fam, like, think about how shallow our relationships with most people actually are. And how they're so rooted in lip service. How are you doing, Shelby? Sorry. You, sorry for what? <laughs> I'm trying to get her. No, no, you're fine. I, I'm, not, I haven't even, I'm not worried about her. I'm just checking, just saying, hey, like, ask yourself the question. You have to put it in context with Jesus first. When Jesus says that he is, that he's made a way for us to be his friend, he meant because I've made a covenant with you in blood. I've laid down my life for you, therefore I can call you my friend. If you can't lay down your life for me, are you really my friend? 
Who are the friends of Jesus? The way the ones who lay down their life for the Lord. And and fam, like, I mean, I never know how far we're gonna get or not get when we get together, because it doesn't matter to me. As long as the Lord is with us and teaching us, I'm good with it. Are you a friend of Jesus? Like, are you willing to lay down your life for the Lord? If the Lord required your life today, what is your answer? And we think about, in the American context, right? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm dying daily. I'm denying my flesh. Like, most of us suck at that. Myself included, right? But fam, what about people in other countries of the world who, when they get saved, they get saved to the knowledge of they may, their actual lives and the lives of their children can and will be required of them in very real time. And it sounds unfair and super intense, right, to say, well, I mean, and we can say, well, I don't live in Sudan. I don't live in a Muslim nation. I don't live in, but I'm asking you, if someone put your spouse or your child in front of you with a gun to their head and said, it's either Jesus or I'm going to kill him right now in front of you. What's your choice? And we'd like to think that we would all say, you can have him. I'm going with God. But the reality is, what is I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what your reality is. I'm just saying, man, that's a hard choice. That's not easy for anybody. But if you haven't already made that choice before the time comes, you will make the wrong choice. It's a conviction you have to have. What are you willing to lay down for the gospel? What are you willing to give up for Jesus? And if the answer isn't everything, there's idolatry in you. And this is, I'm telling you, fam, this is the hard part. Like Jesus said, what did he say concerning family? What did the family man, the father, say about his own family? That it, unless the Son of God is the most important one, you have nothing to do with me. Like it has to be all Him or it's all nothing. And that's extreme. I'm not going to act like it isn't. It is extreme on every level. But do you understand the gospel is the most extreme message in the history of the world? And it was meant to be that way for a reason. That while we want to be balanced in the things of God, we, act, we also don't want to be balanced in the way that religion says to have balance. Because what most religious people mean by balance is being a wet blanket. Just be normal, man. Just be average. Just be status quo. Just be... But the Bible says that it takes faith to please God. That the just shall live by faith. That when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find <laughs> faith. Right? How are you doing this morning? I know it's intense language and intense thinking, but I've just, I'm like, man. So when we're talking about forming family and forming friendships in this season that are rooted and grounded in Christ... What we're actually working towards building is love for each other that comes at a very high cost. One that can only be paid by the grace of God. 
you will not will yourself into living an extravagant life of self-sacrifice. You must say yes to the gospel, receive grace from him to endure what he's called you to endure, and be willing to lay down anything and everything and anyone that God asks you to lay down. And I will tell you, the issue of family, the bloodlines, the parents, the children, the spouses, the this is honestly the thing that's not talked about in the church, but yet it is a very central part of the gospel. Jesus says, who is my mother and my brother? Those who do the will, those who obey the Lord, who have, who have proven to be my disciples... This is who the family of God is. If you're not a child of obedience, you're a child of disobedience. You're not actually a part of the family of God. And we can't have fellowship with you in deep ways because what fellowship can light have with darkness? And again, this is where understanding the gospel, fam, it is both the most exclusive message in the history of the world while it is also the most inclusive message in the history of the world. Meaning, whosoever will, right? Whoever chooses. Well, is it predestination or is it free will? It's both. That all men were predestined to have free will that they might choose him who's made a way for us to be in relationship with him. What's spinning in your mind right now? So right, I go back to this verse a lot that we talk about, John 14, 30, where Jesus literally says, actually, we can, we're right here. We might as well flip over. Somebody read John 14, 30 out loud. 14, 30, and 31. Go ahead, Connor, read it. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave my commandment, so even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Fam, John 14, 30 is the context and the definition of what it means to be a real disciple and to follow Jesus. It means that we have no affiliations with the world. I'm dead to the way that they do life. I don't bring myself into agreement with cultural contexts. I don't br br bring myself into agreement with cultural politics or economics or any system of belief that actually opposes the kingdom of heaven. Like, do you guys understand that we live on a completely and altogether different value system than the world does? Like, fam, it's not close. It's not similar. It's not like we're a shade or a cut of it. It means Jesus said that we are to be in the world, right? We're here, but we're not of it. Like, so I want to put that in the context of Orange Beach. Let's talk about the city that we live in. That we are in Orange Beach, but we are not to be of the culture. What is the culture of our city? 
It's vanity. It's materialism. It's political. It is, it is adulterous. It is drunkenness. It is worldliness. It is compromise. It is middle of the road. It is religious unbalance. It is being normal, being average, being worldly. And fam, this is the culture of the church in this city. I know the feelings. And I think about these things often. I feel like even the Lord recently has, has been challenging me on such a deep level. Alerting me to the reality of our destiny as a community. Saying, hey, do you understand that your willingness to disconnect yourself, right, from the culture of the community that's actually connected to your authority and your destiny. Like it's going to take a people who are in Orange Beach but not of Orange Beach to actually do what God wants done in this place. Does that make sense? And I felt the jealous love of God, man, over this city and over its people, over what God wants to do in this place. But it's also why, I mean, people have asked me, in a very real way, like, well, why don't we just move the, why don't we go find something in Foley or Gulf Shores or Somerdale? It's cheaper out there. Well, it's still Baldwin County. Well, it's, here's what I can tell you. I know that the Lord called us to Orange Beach. Very specifically said, Orange Beach is where I want you. This is the people I want you to be a part of. This is the city I've given you authority in and influence over. It's not here, there, or other places. And Maybe that's not, maybe you don't feel the same way. Maybe you do. And I'm not saying that it's a sin issue. I'm just saying that if you want to be a part of the people and of what God is doing in community, you're going to have to come in and give your life away. And it's going to challenge you. It's going to change you. It's going to require not just something, but everything of you. Stop being a distraction. Lay down. Or face this way. Or sit, just sit and listen. Okay. So let's go back to John 13. Going back to this issue of Jesus says, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how will Orange Beach know that we're legit? If we really love each other. If we're really one. One heart, one mind, one body. If we've worked out all of our irritations, frustrations, impatience, anger, whatever it is, our, indif our differences with one another. Can I just tell you that this room, though it may be small and not full of tons of people, that there's a lot of difference in here. There's a lot of difference in life, background, culture, upbringing, race. Right? 
Fam, these things have to be reconciled and worked out at the cross. And God is not looking for uniformity. He's looking for unity. Do you understand the difference? What's the difference between uniformity and unity? Yes, clones. God is asking us to be like him. He's not asking us to be like each other. Our unity is in Christ, right? It's rallying around the, his person and who he is and becoming like him that makes us one with each other. Uniformity is when we set up a, a set of community standards that exist outside of the scriptures or are only a portion of them and say, everybody has to be doing this. You have to be doing that. You have to be, and if everybody's doing this, then we're in unity. When actually that's not true. Real unity is actually found in the celebration of our diversity. And not just do we tolerate each other, but do we actually celebrate these things about one another. So long as those things are in Christ. Does that make sense? Z, stop. Come here. Come here to me. Come here. Yeah. All right. You're sitting with Uncle Jojo now. Questions, comments. Let's have a conversation. I know there's a lot going on in the room, but the point of doing this this way is not for me to talk the whole time. What are you thinking? Meaning what, Jared? Talking about how we are to be changers, to continually be changed by this. Um, and we have to let go of everything, be willing to let go of everything, allowing all of us to be more dependent on and not holding on to anything, not being willing to or not to have anything that we're not willing to let go of because Jesus won't let us make those things cohabitate. So he doesn't cohabitate. He comes to cut covenant, right? He's in a committed, eternal relationship with us where he actually expects us to become like him. I was thinking even this morning when I was sitting in here praying and worshiping like the Lord was reminding me again. I was telling the Lord how much I love to be with him. And he, was, he said to me, but do you enjoy becoming like me? Because these two things are not different. They're the same thing to me. Like, do you understand, fam, that it's a violation of intimacy to want to be with the Lord but not be changed by Him? It's deceitful and manipulative. Oh, I just want you to stroke my emotions. I just want to benefit from your love personally, but I'm actually not willing to give you anything in return. And if the degree of our willingness to be made into his Christ likeness and image is actually the definition of what we give to him as worship, then how well do we worship God? Say that again. For us to want to be with God, but not be wanting to be like God. 
That is deception. That's why Jody says uh, about the girl, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want Jesus to be there. 100%. I want the kingdom, but I don't want the king, right? right? I want the Savior, but I don't want the Lord. I want the benefit of salvation, but I don't want to give anything in return. It is a very man-centered way of relating to God. Like it's, it's a monologue, right? These are the same people that come to God and they pray and their prayers are, God, give me this. God, give me that. God, show me this. God, show me that. God, give me, give me, give me, 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 I, I, I. And it has nothing to do with being transformed, being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, which is the goal. Fam, even of destiny, direction, prophecy, seeking God. Do you understand like the disciples, when, when we pray prayers out of Colossians 1, talking about being filled with the knowledge of his will, do you guys know that that's the context that Paul is praying out of is the eternal plan of God for humanity. It's not like, Lord, do you want me to go to the grocery store today and what are you going to do for me when I get there? Or No, it's like the knowledge of his will that we would understand our purpose and our place in him and where we fit in the story of what he's doing in our lives to the glory of the son. It's in the context of glorifying God, not in personal fulfillment of a prophecy or a word or a destiny or a like, I'm telling you, man, there is a reason why Paul says in Corinthians 13 that, Glenn, all the gifts are going to cease. But all that's going to remain is... In, yeah, love, right? We, do you think that we could substitute the word love for intimacy? Well, I'm not, love is the right answer. That's what the scripture says. I'm just saying, right? But And, and what, fam, what is intimacy? What does it mean to be intimate with God? Connected, you're one with him. You're abiding in him. To know him deeper. I like to think of the word intimacy like this. In to me you see. Intimacy. In to you me see. Right? Like it's a seeing into him. And being made like him. If you're married in here, what does it mean to be intimate with your spouse? There's an exchange, right? If your intimacy with your wife or your husband is only one-sided and only one person is ever benefiting, would you think that that's unhealthy and dysfunctional? Yes. Absolutely, right? Well, it's no different than with God. And in fact, it's that much more magnified. And think about Think about this. That God who needs nothing from no one at any time. Chooses to be intimate with humanity. Not needing anything from us. Only for the purpose of us receiving something from him. So that we can glory in him. Think about, again, if you're married in this room or you're not married, think about a relationship with a friend or a, a person you know for a long time, right? That relationship that you love is because you're getting something from them, right? And you enjoy giving something to them also. But fam, like, 
The power of the gospel is that God does not need man. It's that God wants man. And he makes himself fully available to us in intimacy and gives himself away without actually needing anything from us. But he wants something from us, which is where worship comes from. What if we defined worship only as, or simplified it to, being made into the image and likeness of Christ? If, God cut, if someone cut out your tongue tomorrow and you couldn't, and you couldn't sing songs to the Lord, would your, would your life still be worshiped to God? It should be, right? So, you know, God is wanting to redefine for us intimacy, which is where we then get our security. And that is actually how we discover destiny. And it's not, destiny is actually not connected to a place. It's connected to the person of God. Look right here, John chapter 14. I'll prove it to you so you know it's not just me. John 14 verse 1, say amen if you're there. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said, but believe in God and believe also in me. I love this. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places or many rooms. If it were not so... I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So he's saying, hey, what did he just tell him in John 13? I'm about to go somewhere. You can't go with me. And they're freaking out, right? But he's saying, hold the phone. I'm go where I'm going, I'm going so that you can be with me where I am. And where is he, Shelby? With, father. with the Father, right? So he's not going to heaven to some spiritual kingdom up in the sky full of mega mansions with golden water slides and bowls of angelic fruit punch, right? He's saying, I'm going to the Father, back to the Father. Through the cross, I'm laying down my life and restoring the breach between you and Him. I've made myself like you in my flesh, married myself to you for all of eternity. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that God, God didn't just become a man for a season, but he forever gave himself to the human race by creating us in his, in his image. There's a real king in real flesh coming back for a real people. Human, human beings made in the image and likeness of God. Do you know why God is so relatively intolerant? Of our unlovingness and our unkindness and our lack of mercy and our lack of grace and our lack of love for each other. Because he views it as an assault on himself because it's an assault on those who have been made in his image. Yeah. That's why the Lord doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't wink at our indiscretions. It is. We were created for fellowship with him, and we were created for fellowship with each other. And when we get outside of that unity and that harmony, it displeases him in a serious way. Now, it doesn't mean that we are to be united and to be in harmony with things and with people that are not of him. But even the way in which we do that has to be done in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. It's a hard line to walk, fam. It really is. 
it can be only be done by the grace of God. So he says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, stop moving. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. We're being received to who? Jesus. Not to a place. Not to a people. Not to a thing. Not to a job. Not to... Right? Like... He goes and says, That where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. I love what he says. He said, And you know where I'm going. Even though he knows they don't know. They're like, wait, what? What do you mean? Like, what? We don't know the way. We've never been to the Father's house. He's setting them up. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do, you, how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. <laughs> gotcha. Not only, not only do you not know where you're going and I am in that place, I'm also the way that you get to the place. I am the journey. I am the dream. I am the destiny. I am the prophecy. I am the intimacy. I am all of it, right? He's literally saying, fam, there's no way around it. John 10, I am the door, right? Nobody gets in without me. There's only one way in. Z, your daddy is going to take you to the bathroom and spank you if you don't stop it. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is there any place in you that's trying to relate to the Father outside the door who is the Son? Is there anything in you that is trying to relate to God outside of God? There are times I feel like that's what we do when we're striving. We're trying to relate to the Lord outside of his grace. Outside of, okay, well, let's put it in this context. The character and nature of God. We violate new covenant intimacy with God by trying to relate to God outside of his person. We reject parts of who he is trying to bypass those parts that we don't like and that we're uncomfortable with in order to try to build a relationship with him. And it's actually a violation of new covenant intimacy. Jesus is saying, no, there's only one way, one truth, one life. And I am him and he is in me. And if you want to get to the father, the father is in me. Because then the disciples go on, right? And they start to say, well, show us the father and we'll believe. And he says, well, once you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's drawing the line in the sand and saying, there is no other revelation of God. I am that revelation. Yeah. If you don't like what you see, your issue is not just with me, it's with God, and I am God. Like, do you understand this? So it's fair to say that there are places in us where we hear the word and we know the word, but we reject it in our unbelief or in our 
lack of character or in our unwillingness to submit to the leadership of Jesus. Huh? But then we still feel like it's okay to try to relate to him on that level. Like it's dysfunctional, right? If I go punch Jared in his face right now and then come back and talk to him five minutes later, pretending like it never happened, and I just start, you know, hey, bud, how you doing? Let's go have lunch. Fam, like this is what we do to the Lord. We sin against God. We, we for, we, you know, we just move it to the side and then we're like, hey, God, you want to, want to get together for intimacy over here? Let me ask you a question, married people. You ever tried to be intimate with your spouse when they're angry with you or when you haven't spent time relating to them? How, how well does that work? It doesn't work. You ain't touching me. I'm going to have a conversation here. That's the Lord. That's why you have to live a lifestyle of repentance. But this is why Jesus says in Romans 1, this is why in Romans 1 Paul says, to those who do not love the truth that you're handed over to strong delusion. Because if you don't love the truth about who Jesus is, you will become delusional in your mind. It is part of a consequence for not loving him. For who he is. Verse 1 and 14. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? They're troubled because he just told them they're going to a place they cannot go. So they're starting to have anxiety, right? He tells them, hey, listen, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't fear. Just believe in me as I've said that I am and everything's going to be okay. Right? Is that what he's saying? Yes. In my father's house. The Greek word is oikia. O-I-K-I-A. It means home or abode or the dwelling place of a family. Come on. Because you can't have a home without a family. What's the difference between a house and a home? One has a family in it and the other is just a structure. God doesn't just want a house. God wants a home. God did not come to build a house in me. He came to make his home in me. And my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. I house his presence. But the homing happens in the relationship. Again, married people with kids. Your wife gets pregnant. She starts wanting to what? To nest, right? You get married. She wants to decorate the walls. She wants to make the bed a certain way. She likes the kitchen set up a certain way. She likes the... You know, most of the time, these things way more with women than men, right? It's part of the nurturing and the nesting and the homing and the... You're going to find out, bro. <laughs> Ladies, yes? Because you're making your home, right? And God actually comes in and starts to do the same thing in us. I want to get comfortable in you. I want to make my home in you. I want to rearrange the furniture. I want to take that off the wall. I want to put this up over here. I want, I want to take that out of the fridge and replace it with this. I want to, right? Mm -hmm. 
What if we said that the guidelines for intimacy with God are way more narrow than what we've made them out to be? John's, or Matthew 7, right? The road is narrow. And so is the gate that leads to life. But broad is the path and the gate that leads to destruction, right? Like, there's a very, if you're going the broad way, you're not going God's way. Let me just tell you that. More often times than not, if you're faced with a choice, the hard choice is Jesus. The easy choice is not him. One requires faith and grace. The other one requires you to just check out and, and put it in autopilot. Coasting, guiding, gliding. Right? Well, this is, I think I should, you know, this makes the most sense. So I'm just going to go. That's how you get yourself in trouble with God. What actually requires faith? What actually requires something of you? I mean, just tell you right now, if your current vision for your life is one that you can figure out on your own, you don't have a God-sized vision. You are riddled with unbelief and apathy and you need to repent. If you've got the next five years of your life figured out, I would say that your vision of God is about a billion times too small. And I don't mean like some vision of grandeur, of what some great glory. I mean your vision of God himself. The vision that I have for my life is dependent upon the vision I have of God. Not of things. Not of what I can be. Not of what my best life now will be. It's what is my life in Christ? And what is your best and your highest will for me, Father? And fam, do you know that his best and highest will for your life may very well look like trials and temptation and suffering? And God is still good? And God is still glorified? And God is still worthy? We paint a picture of God in the church, man. That sets people up for massive delusion and dis... You know where the great falling away is actually going to come from? It's going to come because the church has allowed teachers in itself who do not teach the word of God. And they set the people of God up to be deluded and deceived. That's where it comes from. Fam, if we can't endure now, what makes us think that we'll be able to endure later? Like, there's nobody in this room who has a hard life. Sorry. Not one of you. Not me, not you, not nobody. We live in America. For crying out loud, we live in a beach town. Like, dude, I mean... We live in a culture where you could literally get in $50,000 of debt... And then file bankruptcy and write it off and be forgiven and start your life over. Like, there's really nothing that can happen to you right now, or that is, ha- or I should say, that is happening to you that I would define as difficult biblically. Second Corinthians chapter four. Paul is being beaten with rods and persecuted, starved to death. In prison, and he says, These things are light and momentary afflictions. 
How am I going to pay my bills? God has despaired of me. He's abandoned me. He's... Dude, are you serious? And most of that stuff is from our bad choices, not even from... His leadership. Yeah, not even from his leadership. It's a lack of allowing. That's right. 100%. Ask me how I know. <laughs> That's right. Good idea. <laughs> how do you avoid that? <laughs> A lifestyle of repentance, sorrow, mourning over our sin. I feel like that's what we really are missing. Like we don't actually have the capability or the sorrow because we don't relate to Jesus rightly. So when we sin against him, we're like, yeah, sorry, or, oh, that's not a big deal, or that wasn't a sin. The Lord just, he lets me choose. And we don't actually grieve and mourn our sinfulness. And we don't have a capability to lament the actual grievances that we've committed against the Lord. Like, we actually think he's so loving and so kind, which he is, but we think he's so loving and so kind that he's not demanding of us a humility that causes us to repent for sinning against his nature. And a lot of times when we repent to one another, sometimes I think we repent simply, not all the time, but we're not repenting out of, oh my gosh, I've grieved the heart of the Lord and sinned against a person. We say they caught us in our sin and in order to be restored to our reputation or be restored in their sight, we repent to get out from underneath the uncomfortability of how we're perceived when we sin not actually sorrow or mourning over our sin. Whenever you grieve your sin and sorrow, you weep and you mourn and you tell the Lord, you're sorry, God, I, I, please forgive me. For, and, and depending on the sin, right, depends on the amount of lamenting. If you sin against your brother and you have a bad attitude, you're like, man, Lord, I'm so sorry for breaking your heart and talking to someone like that. But... If you are in sexual sin, that might be several days of grieving. Like, you know what I'm saying? But, there's, but I think that the difference is, is that you come to a merciful and faithful high priest who loves to show mercy. And if your heart posture is truly repentant, you can bet on it, count on it, take it to the bank that he's faithful to forgive you. So then you receive forgiveness with a sober of mind and you go away filled with joy knowing that you're forgiven and you're free and it causes you to enter back into a lifestyle of worship. And because you've been forgiven that sin, you're like, I don't want to do that to you again. You know? So, and so, like, I think too that you don't always have to, grieving your sin doesn't look like tears sometimes all the time either. It can look like I'm so annoyed and sick of this perpetuating carnality in my heart. What are you doing, Joe? I'm trying to see. <laughs> um, sometimes grieving also looks like making war on your carnality, <laughs> meaning that you're memorizing scriptures that deal with your issue. If you have a habitual cycle of sin, let's say it's anger, okay? Not, repenting is not enough. You have to, repentance is turning away. So in order to grieve, you don't sit around crying being like, well, I was angry again, because sometimes people cry, but they don't actually turn away from. So 
It's not just mourning your sin, but getting angry enough at the proclivity of your heart to continue into this and dealing with the root of why you continue on like this. And then memorizing scriptures, David, King David said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, then you go after scriptures and you start making war in your own heart over those places. And that's a place of mourning. I will not sin against the Lord in this area again. You lay hold of the Lord over his word and you begin to commit scriptures. It says, um, there's a scripture that says, uh, better to be a city with no walls than a man who can't, like a city broken down without walls, is a man who can't, who doesn't have control over his own spirit. So you start committing those to memory and you start fighting and railing against your carnality in the grace of God, with the word of God. Knowing this is, and then I was going to read this, Second Second Corinthians chapter 14. But it says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphant procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And so then you lay hold of things like this saying, he is, I am going to be led out in triumph over this sin. I am going to be led out in triumph over my enemies. I am going to be led out in triumph. And I am going to be the aroma of the knowledge of God everywhere I go. Because sometimes we get in this place where, especially if it's a habitual sin that we can't get out of, we begin to believe we'll never be free. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 14. Yes. So the, if we also have to believe when we're putting these scriptures to memory that we're actually going to be free because we have to, again, believe that the word of God will produce fruit in our lives. So if you're committing all of it to memory out of the law and you're strapping yourself and you're cowering going, oh, I'll never be this. I just have to quote these scriptures. Then you're not really getting free. So. You have to commit them to memory while also committing to memory. He is going to transform you. You really are going to triumph in these areas. Does that make sense? Yes. Is even military strategy of the Bible as well is when there was a victory war, the battleground that they won was also clean. It was grounded. When they won the victory, it was grounded. So in the same way that you commit scripture to memory and you study the word based on that area that you're not Mm -hmm. and this is why I don't know why I thought about this but you know that scripture that says the train of his robe fills the temple well the train of his robe fills the temple because when kings would go out to war and they would win a battle they would cut off a piece of the enemy's cloak the other king's cloak and sew it onto theirs so however long the train of a king's robe was actually showed how victorious he was in battle so when, it, when they say, I see the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple, his robe it fills the temple like a bustling dress on a wedding day because there is no enemy he has not conquered. Every king and every, every, every region over every generation over all time, he conquered him and the train of his robe fills the temple. We serve that God. So committing those things to memory, not just going, okay, I have to obey because God demands that of me, but also saying he will also help me, he will change me, he will fill me, and I will triumph in him because he said so.
faith to obey also has to be partnered with faith that he will change us, that we, he will present us spotless on the day of Christ. That's actually him at work in us, but we have to partner with our will. Go to Romans chapter 8. We'll end here. We'll close here. The scripture I'm thinking of for you specifically, Scarlett, is the scripture where Paul says um, to them, Josiah, help me, where he says, uh, don't create excessive sorrow so that they lose heart. Yeah, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Talks, I taught on this. Reaffirming your love for one another. Yeah, so when a, there was someone in sin, and Paul says, <coughs> don't overly discipline them so that they, um, they have excessive sorrow and then they lose heart. So that's how the Lord deals with us too. If you're in excessive sorrow over your sin and you're beginning to lose heart, you haven't received forgiveness for yourself. Like receive forgiveness, be restored to the Lord and to one another and just move on. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 2, 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So whatever the discipline is that was decided by the church, that was handed down to the person who was in sin, Paul's saying that is sufficient in my eyes. He said, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive them and comfort them lest somehow such a one is overwhelmed by the excessiveness of sorrow. So discipline them, but also comfort them. And then he says, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So there is a very necessary part of repentance where we need to allow the sting of the Lord and the discipline of God to settle into our hearts and to other people's lives. But we also need to make sure that in that, they don't then go wallow in the heaviness and the sorrow of their sadness and, and their decision that they made. That they're not having an orphan-hearted pity party, right? Which is what a lot of people do. People take the correction of God as his rejection of them personally. When really, God's correction is his affection for me. How many of you would say you're growing in that grace right now? You're coming to understand that God actually really does correct you because he loves you. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. They do not correct us. God does not correct us in a spiteful, vindictive, punitive, punitive angry way. His discipline is redemptive. Right? And what do we know about discipline according to the Bible? Yes, 
true. That it doesn't feel good in the moment, right? Yes. Is that what Hebrews says? Yes. That discipline is of value and that it is from the Lord and that no, it says no discipline feels good in the moment. How much discipline from God feels good? No. None. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. If it feels good, is it God? Concerning his discipline. Like, we have to trust the sting. We have to let that work in us righteousness. In that, you know what it says? The word says that it produces a harvest of peace. For those who have been trained by it, you can actually be trained by consistent discipline in the Lord. So that you don't have to get the major spankings. Right? I was, we were having fellowship at uh, me and Glenn and... Um, Elijah and Jared uh, over coffee yesterday morning, and I showed them this funny meme. I'll share it with the group. The, me the meme was sanctification. <laughs> and it's sanctification through the divine discipline of the Lord, right? Like, I'm being sanctified, and sometimes it feels like I'm being spanctified. Like, it's true. But that's all part of being trained by the Lord. And how many of you have come to understand, or you are understanding... That the more quickly you run to the correction of the Holy Ghost, right. the less it has to feel like this major trauma in your life where God has to bend you over his knee and whoop your butt. Yeah. You know, like little Andrew's in our house. Jared and Michaela, they live with us right now. You know, little Andrew, like there are times when a no-no gets the job done. And he turns and walks away. There are times when he needs a little Jared spanking because Jared and Michaela's spankings are different. Jared gives him a little pow-pow. Then there's times where he needs a Michaela spanking, which is bam-bam! <laughs> but it's, it's, it's based on the degree of his obedience. Yeah, his willfulness at the time. Right, like... If he hardens his heart to the no-no, then you got to come harder. So if the Lord, if, if you guys learn and we all guys learn to respond to the small, still voice of the Lord and we let it prick us and sting us and we go, okay, all right, you're right. I repent. Let me go make that right. And we do it quickly. Then he's not going to bring the bam, bam. But if I say, that's embarrassing, no, they owe me. I'm not going back and saying that. No, I'm pissed off. I have a right to feel this way, and they are not going to do that. The Lord's like, okay, you want to step up and, and resist and kick against the pricks? Now I have to engage you in a stronger way. Who is? No, James is asleep. right there. Probably Johnny. Sorry. They do sound alike sometimes. <laughs> um, but even when he comes hard at us it's actually you know I was thinking about how Matthew 18 that gets intense right if your brother if your brother's a sin you go to them if they don't listen you take someone with you if they don't listen you take them before the church if they don't listen you kick them out and hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh and for the saving of their soul dude that's actually redemptive those are intense steps of dealing with people. Right? Because, because it, def it, it highlights the principle in the kingdom 
or in God's own character and nature and the way his way of doing things. That God will tear an entire man's life down yes. to the foundation to save that man's life. He doesn't care how big your business is, your ministry is, your influence is, your whatever. None of that actually matters anything to him if he's not the one who gave it to you to begin with. And if it's producing in you idolatry. So God will, will destroy everything to save a man. But even if we have to kick someone out and treat them as worse than an unbeliever for the destruction of their flesh and the saving of their soul, it's actually to produce in them a repentance that they would not give in the first meeting and in the second meeting and in the third meeting. If the first, second, and third meeting aren't producing a repentance, you hand them over to Satan so that the Lord can actually buffet them through handing them over to Satan so that they'll go, oh my gosh, this is awful. Come back to the body of Christ, repent, and be restored to Christ and to the, the body. It's actually redemption. It's not punishment. It's not punitive. It's not a rejection of who they are. But God will go to that length to actually deal with a man. And that's why the body's set in place. How many people have ever seen a church kick someone out who's unrepentant? What church have you been in where, where they have followed the godlines of Matthew 18 all the way through? Has anyone seen the fruit of Matthew 18 before? Isn't that sad? Absolutely. I've actually seen it all the way through. Multiple times. Yeah. For sure. Well, which is and, which is a violation in ungodly too, right? Yes, it's and, and it's non-relational and it's totally transactional. Yeah, like, and, and it's punitive, not redemptive. Right. The, absolutely. It is, absolutely. Because it's easier just in front of the church to just kind of say it kind of. Well, and in legalistic communities, bro, that are ate up with religion, they actually enjoy kicking people out of community for violating their rules, right? Yeah, 100%. It has, there, there's no love there. There's no consideration or Fear concern the for their eternal soul or what they're doing in their life. Were you going to say something? No. Scarlett, I think you were going to say a bunch of things earlier. Nothing. It's a clarion call. It's very specific, man. And it's why we've continued to tell people, hey, if you've heard the call, come. If you haven't, I'm not, like, I'm not going to work overtime to help you stay here. Like, if God's called you to community, then you're going to have to come in and do the work the same way that everyone else has. Mm -hmm. And I actually wanted to say this prophetically to people in this room. I don't really have anybody too specific in mind when I'm saying this, but I want to say it because I really feel like the Lord needs us to understand not only this principle, but it's a part of who he is. And here's the principle. Are you ready? Yeah. That just because God called you to something doesn't mean it's got to be, oh, I was going to say Z. Z is usually the flat, the, the light culprit. It's Johnny. Let's see he's over there. 
Just because God called you to something and you obeyed in faith doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go the way you want it to right away. And I see people step out in faith all the time. They make a move towards God. Make a move towards God. Make a move towards God. I'm starting a business. I'm moving. I'm leaving a relationship. I'm selling my house. I'm whatever it is. And here's what I want to tell everybody in this room. Be very careful that you don't come up with an idea in your mind of what it's got to look like for you to be satisfied with what God is saying and doing. Hold it all loosely. Let God be God. Don't run ahead of Him and try to be the God of your own life. Obey the Lord in faith, which is pleasing to Him, and leave the leadership up to Jesus. Like, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to... Look, James 4 says that anyone who says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, is arrogant and deceived in their heart. That's what the Bible says. (laughs) If... The Lord wills, we will do this. If the Lord wills, we will. That's actually the humble way to pray. It's our acknowledgement and even our praying and our planning, all things are tentative and unless the Holy Ghost is doing it, we're out. Right? But our contentment is that if we're in Christ and he's all in all, James 4. then it doesn't matter what it looks like. Whether it's persecution, famine, sword, whatever 13, it is, maybe? if it's in Christ, Honor. we're fulfilled. Yeah. But it's about the security of your foundation on the word, and the word is him. And this is the... <clears throat> and this is the danger of prophesying to people, yeah, you're... God's going to give you so much money when you get there and you're going to be wealthy and get a Lamborghini and you're going to have the top level jobs. And, you know, we watch that in charismatic churches, you know, you're blessed and highly favor and whatever. But the reality is, though he slay me, the the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, not because God doesn't want to prosper people. But because of the way that we've defined prosperity. That's right. That's right. Absolutely, bro. This is again, where does the great falling away come from? It comes from we've set people up with a knowledge of God that's not actually rooted in the reality of who he is. Yeah. So God will actually ask you to do something. He may even give you a vision for something that seems great and grandiose. And who knows? Maybe one day it will be. But then it gets sifted through testing and trial and disappointment and suffering. And we bail on on God's plan because it got hard and that couldn't have been God. And it's like, no, actually, all it does is reveal a weakness in our character. Dude, look at listen to what Romans 5 says. Romans 5. I was just about to go here. 4, verse 4. Yeah, well, 3 through 5. Are you guys there? Yeah. Romans 5, in verse 3. Paul says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. How do you learn how to endure and persevere? Through good times or tough times? The mountaintop or the valley? So we learn to trust God when it's easy or when it's hard? 
Oh, who still wants to be made into the image and likeness of Christ Jesus? Right? God, make me like you. Lord, I just want to be like you. Here you go. Right? So, trial and tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings about what? Proven character. Everybody wants to be somebody, but you ain't been through nothing. And everybody who's not been through anything actually has nothing beneficial to say. And this is why I really do believe it's in the best interest of most people to sit down and shut your mouth. Until you actually <laughs> endured something in God and you have something fruitful to say. Right? You cannot be transformed by the knowledge of something you have not experienced. Until then, all your sermonizing and your ministering is ideologies and ideas. It's not a revelation. <laughs> Hello? And we're talking about being something, going through something while holding on to Christ. And this is why we can say in the kingdom, there's no such thing as a messenger whose life is not the message. That's right. John the Baptist came crying a reality that he represented. Jesus came preaching a gospel that he modeled. Yes. Right? I've been with the Father. I represent him. I know what I'm talking about. When you look at my life, this is what it is. But yet the church is full of people who love to preach and prophesy and ponder and posture and hypothesize. And But you look at their life and you're like, but you're a hypocrite, bro. Your life bears no fruit. Your marriage bears no fruit. You're and fam. Graham Cook said one time, we're all just a bunch of recovering Pharisees. He's right. There's a hypocrite in everybody who needs to be put to death constantly. You don't escape that. Our tendency towards hypocrisy, fam, as a whole, is much higher than we'd like to believe that it is. Oh, absolutely. True or false? True. Think about what I'm saying. How quickly we go and do something we just judge somebody in our heart for doing. That's right. <laughs> oh, how do you avoid that? Dude, throw yourself on the righteousness of Christ Jesus, man. Lord, if there's any good thing in me, it's because you put it in me, not because I attained to it in my own strength and striving. If we actually kept that, at the forefront of our hearts and minds, we would bleed, we would be a lot more Christ-like. Yes or no? Yes. Oh, Jesus, help me. But keep going. Yes. Perseverance, right? So we endure trials. It produces perseverance. Perseverance is how we actually develop character, right? And it, not just character, but proven character. Yeah. Established. Consistent. And yeah, what is proven, right? Consistent. Faithful in every season of the soul, this is who I am. No matter what's happening in my life, my revelation of God doesn't change because of how much money I have or how my job is going or how my marriage is going or how my I'm sick and health. I'm whatever, right? I'm just streamlined with Christ. And proven character is what produces what? Hope. Hope. If you're hopeless, it's a character <coughs> Any place, who said this, babe? Any place 
in your heart that is not glistening with hope is under the influence of a lie. Say it again. At any place in your heart that is not glistening with hope is under the influence of a lie. Because Every area in your heart that is not shining with the light of hope is under the influence of a demonic lie concerning the knowledge of God. And the reason it's there is because you don't have character. Well, it just needs you mean character, right? You need character. But it says, keep going, it says, this hope, which you'll get, right, will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, who was given to us. Bro, yeah. I mean, it's where, Glenn, it's where our apathy comes from, bro, right? It's where we become cold and indifferent. It's where our faithlessness comes from. And here, fam, do you know what, the, do you know what faithlessness actually is in real time? It's faith in yourself. Yeah. Huh? I'm not putting my faith in God. If you're not putting your faith in God, you don't take your faith and put it in nothing. Everybody has faith. Agnostics have faith. It takes faith to, quote unquote, believe in nothing. Right? Everybody believes in something. You want to know what somebody believes in? Just look at where they spend their money, what they put their time and their energy and their effort into. That's your religion. That's your God. That's what you worship. <laughs> and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured within our hearts through the Holy Ghost who was given to us. Now listen, what, ver what does verse 6 say? For while we were still helpless. You say helpless? helpless? Help me, Lord. For while we were still helpless, Elijah, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that we will, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it is he who is faithful to work his life and his character into us. Right? Like we say all the time, salvation is a work of the Spirit. Yes? So Can you be saved on your own? No. Is it a work of the Holy Ghost? Yes. Salvation is a work of the Spirit and so is sanctification. You... Sanctified. To be made like Christ. It takes God to become like God. You don't become like God on your own. You don't come become like God by trying harder. Right. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say earlier. You were talking about how the Lord spoke to you. He said, you want to be with me, but you don't want to, you want to be like me. Right? Like, he flipped the script on me and he's like, you want to be like me, but you want to be with me. As in the religious thing. Come on. Yeah, that's really good, Scarlett. it's legalism. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what the Pharisees did. They're mimicking an idea of God, but they're actually producing no fruit. That is powerful, too. Woo-hoo-hoo! Scarlett, this next part's for you. So if you go back to verse 8, but God proves his own love for us when we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath? 
Yeah, like if he, are, if he died for your salvation and you're in Christ and he's working with you on your sanctification, he's working in you for sanctification, you don't have to fear wrath. Tell us, Liz. Say it one more time. God, God seeks a persistent righteousness, not a superficial righteousness. That's right. Well, and this is what Josiah was saying the other day. So many of us, we don't, we, we judge our righteousness according to our own standards. Well, I'm doing better this week. So now I can just coast because we're judging our growth according to where we were, not according to Christ. Whereas if we continue to look at him, we wouldn't go, okay, well, we've grown, so now we can chill out. We would say, no, we have so much further to go. Yeah. it sounds like a diet. On a diet, it's short term, and then when you feel like you've got a place where you want to be, you'll treat yourself, and inevitably you'll fall back. Yes. But if you change your lifestyle and your habits, that's when you stay yeah. So the, the, and, habitual and, and, righteousness, and that actually, that actually, I feel like to this is highlighting even another like just line of thought I had with the Lord this morning, thinking about our time together. Of like, I feel like if if anything, if we leave here today, what I feel like the Lord wants us to understand, like if I summed it all up, it would be this, right? That the life of a disciple, man, the life of actually living in Christ and living for the Lord. Like, it is about consistency in him every day. It's not like I'm going to do this until, like, my big breakthrough happens and then I'm going to change something else. Like, what if the breakthrough doesn't come, man? What if your business doesn't blow up? What if life doesn't turn out the way you want it to? What if your spouse dies tomorrow? What if you, you get paralyzed? What if, and I'm not playing this, like, evil what if thing, like, we need to be afraid. I'm just saying, do you understand, like, no matter what, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Yeah. Cold, Elijah? Oh, yeah. He said, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Sorry, man. Oh, Does that make sense, fam? Yeah. Like, God wants to recondition our hearts as a body of believers to, in one sense, get comfortable with being uncomfortable every day. I'm not trying... To do something so that then I can achieve some level of spirituality by where which I no longer struggle in my toil or in my temptation or in my. And again, I'm not saying temptation, meaning that like you're struggling not to watch porn every day. If that's the issue, you need deliverance and we want to see you become healed and whole. I mean, fam, the Bible says cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation that. The only way into the kingdom is through great toil, right? The only way into the kingdom is through perseverance. It is through endurance. It is through suffering. It is through, and fam, it doesn't mean that there's not good days. It doesn't mean that we actually can't have joy in the moment. But the difference between joy and happiness as defined by the world is joy is in Jesus, Happiness is connected to a set of circumstances that are dictating to me my emotions. And how many of us can say that our emotions have been our God? We've bowed down to them. 
We've worshipped them. We've actually called them the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. We've exalted them in our life as God. We've called it discernment. We've called it the prophetic. And really, it's all Stop apologizing. Okay. I have the biggest issue because I'm so emotional. Like, I wasn't always like this. I used to trust, like, the, you know, the voice of the Holy Spirit. But I come to this place where it's like, you know what? I don't want to call my emotions to the Holy Spirit. And I got really serious about it. It becomes a big issue with me to the point that I no longer trust myself to hear God's voice because I, 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 I have trouble discerning, is this my emotions or is this what the Lord will help you with that. As you grow in the knowledge of who the Lord is, yes. your emotions will become sanctified. Because yes. your emotions make great servants and terrible leaders. Your emotions were given to you to serve you. Not for the, you to serve them. Yeah, your emotions serve you in the knowledge of God. We often say that if the enemy can stir up your emotions, he will redirect your will. He uses your emotions. He uses your emotions against you when in reality, if you're crucified with Christ, your emotions will serve your benefit to the glory of God. But the enemy is so good at coming and twisting us up with false feelings. Yeah. Right? And again, like... The enemy will come and stir up your emotions to redirect your will. And a great way, Scarlett, to discern where my emotions are coming from is the character and nature of God. Is what I'm feeling coming from fear, anxiety, worry, strife, unbelief, anger, lust? Like if it's coming from any of those places, that is an emotion that's not sanctified and it needs to be crucified. But... Yes. You're, Absolutely. The, Lord, the Lord's not just sanctifying you, but he's also sanctifying your emotions. And Jesus, do you know Jesus, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are actually emotional. They do everything from their emotions, but yes. their emotions are righteous. Therefore, they never sin. God is angry. God is love. God is jealous. God is, you know what I'm saying? So everything God does is from his emotions. But because he is righteous, his emotions don't sin. Well, and this is what we've done in the church, right, is... I mean, as a whole, it doesn't matter what denomination or background you come from, we overcorrect things. So if it's hyper-emotionalism, then we're like, no emotions. If it's no emotion, now we swing to hyper-emotionalism. Like, we actually don't know how to be healthy and just be in the middle of the middle. I can have emotions that are holy and from the Lord. Like, well, stop all that crying or Jesus wept. Jesus I mean, says... Be angry and sin not. So you're actually allowed to be angry and not sin. But that takes character. Well, you know, I mean, again, like, so we've been talking about judgment. Well, is it judge nobody or judge everybody? Everybody. I mean, no, it's judge according to the way that God judges as he judges. According and if you don't do it, you are going to end up in one ditch or the other. So, right. So, who or right the key to the whole thing is Jesus, right? Yes. He and this is again, fam. People are not the standard. Paul, the apostle, is not the standard. Josiah and Jen are not the standard. Your pastor from back home is not the standard. Your neighbor is not the standard. Jesus has to be the standard, and His Word is 
His revelation to us of who he is. Do you guys know what a plumb line is in building? When they drop a plumb line? Okay. That's the word of God. You build your, the word of God is your plumb line. So that all the walls that get erected in your life. Jesus is the foundation. He's, he's, he's the cornerstone. And he's the head. So Jesus is your is your foundation he's also the plumb line so that when you're raising walls in your life the word of god you're raising them and erecting them correctly God does not give himself in pieces and his expectation of us is that we would not do that either. Like, and his blood is good enough to help us in the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength. And and I mean, fam, listen, like, I think about um, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord search the earth and to the heart that is given fully committed fully commitment fully devoted it says he gives strength like trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not and he in all your ways acknowledge everything like, In all your ways, acknowledge him. I want everyone to close your eyes. I want you to say, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Search, me search me and see if I'm withholding anything from Christ. See yourself coming and getting on the altar, laying down on the altar before the Lord Jesus and giving him everything, your mind, your will, your emotions, your husband, your children, your finances. Fully surrender, fully be devoted. Repent if need be. Repent for every place you reserve the right to sin against the Lord and against his people without repentance or sorrow. Tell the Lord, Lord, as your eyes roam the earth to and fro looking for a heart that's fully committed to you, let your eyes stop with me.
when you guys, when we leave here today, leave with a sober mind. Not a heavy heart, but just a sober mind. Watch over your mouth. Watch over the attitudes of your heart. Watch over your mind. Watch over what you're thinking. We as believers do not have permission to think every thought that comes into our mind. We don't have permission to do that. And if you sin, because you will, as he's sanctifying you, don't harden your heart as in the days of unbelief, but go quickly to repent. Be a person of quick repentance. And then thank the Lord for forgiveness. I'm gonna, I want to say this too, is I think that we were doing a really great job to watch out. This is something me and Jared and Josiah were talking about yesterday. I can't remember where McKay, I think she was putting the baby down. But it was a conversation. They were having separate conversations as well. But, you know, we started off really well talking about throwing down the accuser in our midst. And how I feel like we've gotten better at face-to-face -face confrontation and going to one another when we're offended. But I think that the Lord is coming even after our thoughts. Like, okay, we're going to one another, and now we're not sinning openly, but we're still reserving the rights to be offended in our minds, to have bitterness in our thought life, to not react to what we're thinking, but we're still allowing thoughts of impure motives towards one another to linger in our minds. And the Lord, listen, the Lord is glad that we're no longer acting on those things. But now he wants our minds to be more sanctified. If you have an offense today, go before you leave and work it out. Let's continue to be a people who the Lord isn't asking us to lay down our worship and go be reconciled. Let's do that and give that to him as a gift. If it's your children, repent to your children. I remember there, we were at this conference and um, the, the guest worship leader just literally banged on her keys in the middle of a song and stopped worshiping. And she said, it was a citywide conference and she's like, I can't even worship in here. Like you guys are all, I just feel massive offense and the Lord just does not care. I will not play until you guys go repent to one another. And pastors were getting up. Oh no, Bubba Love. Um, pastors were getting up, repenting to one another. Women were getting up, repenting to one another. Families, youth groups, they were repenting to one another. And I was in my own little self-righteous world going, ah, I've done all the work. Like, I can't think of anyone that I'm offended with. Look at, look at me. Literally, I, and I wouldn't have said I said look at me, but I had this like haughty, self-righteous, like, nope, I did it all. I can't think of anybody I'm offended with. And the Lord's like, you're offended with your son. Go be reconciled. And I'm like, but he's four. And the Lord's like, yeah, but he sinned against you. And you said you forgave him, but you're still embittered. Go be restored. So I marched my happy little self-righteous butt all the way back to children's church, pulled my kid out of children's church, bent down before his four-year-old little self, and said, 
I'm offended with you because you continue to sin against me. And I don't know how to reconcile that you're going to keep doing that. Please forgive me. Like, and of course, he said he forgave me and he went back to playing. And the Lord's like, now you can go worship. So sometimes our offense is even with our children. It doesn't have to be with an adult. So it can be with other people's children. Go and repent to them. Love you guys. Questions, comments?